0: Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show the man known as the Skid Row CEO, Joe Roberts. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Joe's early life, the impact that had on his own addiction and homelessness, his extremely powerful journey out of his mental health crisis, his success in the world of business, the idea that led him to the 2016 Push for Change, where he pushed a shopping cart across Canada, the incredible kindness from strangers he encountered along the way, the importance of post traumatic growth, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 830 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Joe Roberts. Enjoy. Well, Joe, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, thank you to my friend, Steve Sakaguchi, who I believe sat in one of your presentations and was so enthusiastic about me reaching out to you. And secondly, to you yourself for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's an honor. Look, I, I'm always looking for rooms to share this story and where I know it's going to have a visceral impact. So yeah, shout out to Steve. And um, yeah, when I sort of did my recon on uh, LinkedIn, I I got excited at the opportunity
0: to reach your listeners. So, yeah, grateful to be here. Well, you have a phenomenal story. Um, I would love to start at the very beginning of it and walk through, obviously, not just the the kind of couple of chapters that are very evident that you talk about a lot, but right from the genesis. So, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: yeah. Before we do, I just want a precursor because there's something I'm always looking for when I'm about to listen to somebody and that's earn the right. And I think that one of the biggest things to talk about is that I'm here today because of first responders. I'm here today because of fire. I'm here today because of police. You know, there was a point in my life where it was really sideways. And had I not had that interaction, but yeah, go back. Um, normal Canadian kid grew up in a little town called Midland, which is about an hour and a half north of Toronto. I had a dad that worked at the local seatbelt factory. I had a older brother, younger sister, a tree fort in the backyard and a fat little dog named Angus that had magical powers. This dog could hear you. He he could uh, hear you unwrap a cheese wrapper from like three and a <laughs> half blocks away. You <laughs> open the fridge door, and he'd be right there with those begging eyes. Right, the first, you know, first eight years, things were idyllic. You know, oftentimes when I when I share the story, it's it was like um, first eight years was like a sitcom. You know, cue the music. You know, we would go to school come home in the afternoon mom was a you know a stay-at-home mom it's not that she couldn't have had a career she just chose to follow in her mom's footsteps so you know it was the early 1970s and um yeah for the first eight years things were were, were really really good um and then we got a, a knock on the door one day and uh, we were informed by our local priest that my father had passed away suddenly from heart failure. And it was just like, boom, everything changed. Like I can trace back almost everything to that, you know, that moment. And, you know, here we were a lower middle, lower middle-class family. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. You know, it was, we didn't feel poor. We had a lot of, um a lot of family wealth, you know, if that makes sense. Like my dad was a real dedicated father. He was a hockey coach, baseball coach. You know, he was someone like us kids, he couldn't wait to run home from work, you know, it was like it's like that scene on Freddie Flintstone, Yabba Dabba Do down the tail and off to home. He came. And you know, at home he he liked sticking around. He he was there for us to throw a ball around to, you know, we had summer vacations and camping and, and, in my father's footsteps or in his, sorry, in his shadow, I felt like loved safe and protected. You know, he was the kind of man who would say things to me like, I love you, son, you can do and be anything. And in, you know, in, in that moment, dad was gone. And so internally i was i was an eight-year-old boy so that's huge for for a young boy to to lose dad at such a young age um so i had that to deal with my brother and sister you know they lost their father my my little sister was five and my older brother was 11 so it was five eight and eleven and like literally from that knock on the door um everything you know like I lost dad. Our family lost our father. My mom, she lost her partner in this little family. And us as a unit lost our economic stability and security. And I think this is probably the first time in my life where I started to feel like anxious. It was probably the the beginning seeds of mental health challenges that would you know surface later but i remember there was a lot of um a lot of fear coming off mom you know she she's now you know figuring out how am i going to pay the mortgage dad wasn't well insured you know he had enough money to put him in the ground and that was it so now we were a family you know a single parent family mom had to raise these three kids on her own no mortgage so what happened next was a series of very unfortunate events. You know, mom remarried relatively quickly. And I don't, I don't fault her for that. You know, when you consider, you know, the early 70s, you know, and she was, uh, you know, looking to pay bills and support these three kids. And the guy who came into our family next sort of ticked that box. But, you know, I've often said he interviewed really well. but when he got inside the home, he was a violent, abusive alcoholic. And so I went from this dad who said things like, I love you, you can be and do anything to a man who'd say things like, you're stupid. You're a piece of shit. You'll never amount to anything. And what I know today as a youth advocate is that if you can get a kid to believe a lie, you can sort of predict some of their, their poor choices later in life. And so I went from this dad who just really loved being a dad to a guy who didn't particularly want anything to do with us kids. And for me personally, I was a target. I was the middle kid. I was a mama's boy, okay? And I I say that with pride today. a strong relationship with my mom, but that was a threat to him. He didn't like that. I had emotional intelligence as as a boy that he didn't have. And so, you know, here I am now trying to deal with the grief of losing dad layered on top of now this new sort of emotional, physical, and mental abuse. And so it's kind of like trauma, trauma. And our family, you know, in the early 70s, we didn't talk about trauma and grief counseling and, you know, you just suck it up, buttercup, and all of that, you know, grew up around a lot of that sort of male, you know, big boys don't cry kind of thing. And, and so I learned, you know, it's like self-sufficiency or the illusion of self-sufficiency and had a hard time sort of reaching my hand for help. And so, you know, this went on for, for a long time, you know, I, um, Tony or Tony, my stepfather was, it's funny, as I share this story, I just want to sort of little little caveat or vignette. I forgave him. I, I realized today you can't recover in hate. And he was just a guy like me, um, who got shit put on him by his dad, likely. You know what I mean? It's like hurt people, hurt people. So I get it. And yeah, you know, I remember saying to myself, man, when this when this when this guy dies, I'm gonna do the jig. Like, cause I knew I'd love him. And uh, when he did finally pass away alone as an alcoholic in an SRO in downtown Barry, I felt a a sadness, you know, because he never got recovery. He never got to deal with his demons. He never got to make it right with his family. It was so sad when he died that he had two families. He had a family before us and us. So with three kids and a second wife and two kids and a first wife and nobody would claim the body that's the kind of wreckage you know and so i look at that today and i think well but for the grace go I. i i happen to be a lucky guy who had those people and stumbled into that recovery community and managed to get my my stuff together but um it could have easily been yeah so by the time i'm 14 15 um i'm i'm pissed at the world You know, I'm, I'm starting to act out. Um, I'm starting to get in trouble at school and I'm starting to get in trouble in the community. And when I was, when I was nine, my brother and his, his uh, older friends, and I always wanted to be a part of my brother's crowd. Like I always, I always looked up to my brother, but he never invited me in that much. I don't know what was going on there, but. I was, but I was always trying to be a part of that, that group. And one day they were, they were using drugs and he said, do you want to join us? And, uh, I was like, yeah. And it wasn't that I was curious about doing drugs or getting high or the impact that would have on my body. I wanted to fit. And so I was willing to do whatever, you know, it took to, to belong because belonging was something that I was yearning for. And so I used drugs for the first time. And I, I remember going home high. Um, by the way, I, I couldn't tell people for the longest. I used to lie. I used to tell people I smoked pot. I went home high on pot. And it was, this is was a flat out lie. It was glue. We were sniffing glue. right? But I was so ashamed of that, that, that I had used solvents, right? Lots of shame. Anyways, I went home under the influence of, of solvents. And I was sitting on my mom's green plaid couch and I don't know, it's like Gilligan's Island or something was playing on the TV. And my head was just like, and uh, my stepdad walked come into the house. And he used to come in loud and aggressive. That was sort of his MO. And he, he would do that to intimidate and frighten everybody. And we would all just kind of scurry off into our corner. For the first time, I wasn't afraid of him. I remember sitting there on the couch and smiling at him like a Cheshire cat, right? Because under the influence, I wasn't afraid of him. I thought you can't you can't get me here. And I remember just grinning at him like what are you going to do? I found a way to cope in an emotionally uncertain world. That's what substance gave me. Is it gave it it actually worked. It's like I so get why you know, people who are dealing with trauma or dealing with depression or dealing with uncertainty, anxiety, fear. Look at the last couple of years. It's like we see this uptick right across the board. It's not just in America. It's everywhere. You know, Australia, the UK, Canada, the US. When we are dealing with emotional uncertainty and fear and anxiety and all kinds of stuff or unresolved trauma, it's like it's a natural go-to to want to medicate and change the way we feel because it feels like it feels like shit and so i found a way at nine years old it's like oh man this is this is my ticket and it wasn't like you know i signed up for this rebellion or lawlessness or any of that it was like this worked so i'm gonna do it again i'm gonna do it and what happens is you know the story is so familiar it stopped working and it started to have far more consequences than um than benefits. And by the time I was 15, 16, it started to show itself in behavior at school. I started to become aggressive. I started getting trouble in the community. Um, I started getting in trouble with law enforcement. At 15 years old, I got kicked out of the house. At uh, 16 years old, I uh, I dropped out of school. And at 17 years old, I got arrested for the first time and it all happened like bing, bing, bing. It just, it was this, like, there was this whole pile of things that were happening um, in succession. And I didn't feel like I had control, you know, it's like I felt out of control. And the only thing that was really going well for me um, at this point was I was in a relationship with a girl I dated in grade 10 and with What's interesting about this relationship is that she was the only person in the world who I let know who I really was. You know, even my mom, I, I, you know, I had some, a mask or a guard up, but this um, gal was dating. I, you know, I let her in and I showed my, my real self, but my behavior was such that I was getting into trouble every weekend. I was getting into fights. I was getting into, you know, trouble with legal, you know, the the with with the police and stuff. And so after about a year and a half of dating, she finally sat me down and said, I'm not I'm not going where you're going. Like I believe in you. I really do. I think you're, you know, a wonderful young man, but I want to go to college. I want to have kids. Um I want to have a career and I don't I don't know where you're going, but I don't want any part of it. And so the relationship dissolved. And I remember what triggered for me was a whole bunch of feelings around sort of abandonment. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like, you know, it's, it's just like losing dad, right? It's like everybody that I counted on, you know, eventually disappeared. And so I was alone. I was scared. I used... You know more alcohol and drugs. By this time, I had graduated from solvents to pot and marijuana, and and uh, you know LSD and, and cocaine. And um, I was basically that teenager that was sort of hell bent. And at that point in my life, it was really about the party. You know, on the surface, I wore I wore it well. It looked like I was having a good time. I was just sowing my wild oats, if you will, right. But inside was this scared little boy that had never really grown up and never really de- dealt with the big stuff. And I didn't understand that until decades later. But I, I wore my welcome out in the little town. Uh, we moved from Midland. And I was now living in Barrie, which is just down the road closer to Toronto. And um, after I broke up, I decided I was going to go west. I was going to go to to Vancouver and um the year was 1986 and the world's fair was on uh, expo 86 and so i thought i'm going to go out and uh see what's going on in vancouver i'll get a job you know i'll get a fresh start it'll be great and back in those days you could jump on a Greyhound bus and go anywhere in Canada east or west for 99 bucks. So, like you could literally go from Halifax to Victoria for 99 bucks. So that I went to Toronto Bay Street, got my $99 ticket and headed west for fame and fortune. The thing that I didn't understand is that I packed all that trauma with me. I packed all of that crap with me. And now <clears throat> I had moved you know 4000 miles away from kin, away from family away from this little community that had resources for me, a school that I may have been able to interact with or go back to family, uncles, aunts, friends. And I remember when I landed in Vancouver there, I had this overwhelming feeling of aspiration. You know, I was like, yeah, Vancouver is a place where I'm going to get a redo, a mulligan. Anybody plays golf knows what a mulligan is, a start over a redo a drop ball, right? Doesn't count. And uh, little did I know that that park, I remember that it was a beautiful, sunny May, May, I think it's like May 12th, May 14th, beginning of May. And the sun was coming up over the downtown east side. And I remember having had this overwhelming feeling of aspiration, you know, yeah, this is the place where I'm going to get a fresh start. And um, little did I know that within a, within about two weeks, I'd actually be living in that park. You know, I, I moved away from all oversight. And so when I did communicate back with my mom, because I still had a, you know, I still had a line in in with her, I didn't tell her how bad it was going. And what happened is in Vancouver is I got introduced to uh, more dangerous substances and, and I got into um, cocaine, I got into heroin. And so within... You know, within a few weeks, I was in that park. And within a a month or two after that, I was actually sleeping under the bridge beside that park. And over the next, you know, number of years, I was that regular guy you'd see in the inner city, you know, kid in his late teens, early 20s, pushing a shopping cart, supporting an opioid dependency. I never planned on it. And I was quite ashamed to wear it, you know, my station in life. <clears throat> but i didn't have the i didn't have the internal assets to turn it around on my own i every day i woke up i wanted to be different i wanted to live up to you know s- standards that i grew up as a, as a kid but i was i was sort of stuck in this sort of vicious circle of of addiction and i couldn't i couldn't get there on my own yeah So um, I found myself in, um, you know, years went by. And during this time, uh, and I think this is important to talk about, is I didn't have a a warm, fuzzy relationship with police, with first responders, with, like, even emergency rooms when I found myself in and out of emergency. I was was one of those guys who was just a high-volume contact. The kind of guy you see in your community that just freaking wears you down because it's like, oh, man, this is like the 70th time we brought this guy back to life. You know, that was me. I I am that quintessential draw on community resources. I was an addict. I was in and out of courts. I was in and out of homeless shelters. I was the guy in the food lineup. I was I was the guy getting Talked to by police two three times a week. It wasn't that I was a threat in the community. It wasn't like I was this big time gangster bad guy. I was a nuisance more than I was a threat, you know. And and I don't want to color it wrong. I was I was no saint, but I wasn't you know I was was no Al Pacino either. You know, it's like I wasn't no mastermind criminal. I was your common garden variety dope fiend trying to get it on a daily basis, right? And so you know, years went by and it and it was like it was like I lived in a house with dirty windows my light didn't get out and the light out there didn't get in and it just sort of was like the boil the frog thing it just happened over time until one time I found myself you know living on the streets pushing a shopping cart to collect cans and bottles and that was that was where life sort of default took me and um one day, uh, just before Christmas in 1989, I was beginning to descend into opiate withdrawal. And I, I, don't, I don't share this component of the story to trigger anybody. <clears throat> but I was beginning to descend and go down further, deeper and deeper and deeper into opiate withdrawal. And the only way I can describe that for those who are not really familiar with that as a process, it's like the worst flu you've had in your life. You know, you get the hot sweats, the cold sweats, you get pounding headache, upset stomach. You can't sleep. Your anxiety is going through the roof, right? So think about the time when you've been really, really ill with the flu. You know, you're curled up on a couch. You're just trying to get through the day. You got no energy. It's just everything is hard. Now imagine that times 100 and you're on a park bench in the rain. And you know that 10 bucks makes it go away. 10 bucks. That's it. And as much as you don't want to you you don't want to feel that 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 crap um any longer and and I remember sitting on a park bench and I was beginning to descend into withdrawal 3 days before Christmas I know that because it was my brother's birthday and uh, I just felt like hell and and uh, I didn't want to steal or rob or be violent that just wasn't who I was it was that wasn't my character and but I needed 10 bucks. And I remember looking down at my feet. And I came up with what I thought was my best, my best move. And I w- waited for the bar across the street to open. It was called the uh, it's called the Rainbow Hotel. It's called the Pennsylvania today. And this was right in Vancouver's downtown east side in that infamous sort of five, 10 square block area. I was in a little place called Pigeon Park. And I walked into the bar and I sold the only item I had left in the world that was worth anything, and it was the boots off my feet. And I remember walking outside and I traded those boots for for uh, for some drugs, and I used them and sort of took the edge off. But I remember walking outside and it was cold and rainy, Socks I'd been wearing for a year, and my foot touched the cold concrete sidewalk. And I just remember. James having this feeling like i just don't want to be here anymore you know it's like life was so fucking hard and i hurt so much and it, i i couldn't see my way out you know it's like it was hidden And this is where I believe that something changed. You know, it's like, this is a moment where I became willing to do something different. You know, maybe you you can call it personal accountability. Maybe you can call it divine intervention. Um, In this moment, um, I had these like deep thoughts of, of harm in myself. And, um, and I'm grateful I never took action on those. You know, instead, I remember I walked across back to the park and I sat in that park bench and I I remember looking up and it was like the, you know, the rain was coming down on my face, and I just cried out for help, you know. And I said this little prayer. And I, you know, I would never describe myself as someone who's deeply religious, but I've always sort of believed in something benevolent out there and that has my best interest. And I I asked you know, in this petition, this little prayer, I said, I I want a second chance. I don't deserve it. But I really, really love a second chance, man. You give me a second chance, I will not waste the opportunity and I'll do something to help others. And I didn't think much of that little, you know, street corner desperation prayer. But the next day, I I walked into this uh, soup kitchen there was this guy, his name was, I think his name was Bill. And uh, he and I knew each other because he was always there. And uh, he was serving squash soup that day. And he had an apron that was all orange. And he looked at me and like, I I look rough. You know, I was, I looked like a drowned cat. It had been raining all night. Rains a lot in Vancouver. And uh, he noticed right away I wasn't wearing shoes. So he got me a pair of shoes. And he says, what do you want to do, Joe? And I said, I think I want to. I think I want to get clean. And I remember he came around from where he was serving the soup and he come over to give me a hug. <laughs> and um, I was like, you know, get away from me. You got soup all over you. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, like I've been, we- I've been wearing the same clothes for a year and a half. Right. It's funny how pride, eh, it just gets in the way. Even in. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he, he put a squeeze on me and he said, let's get you the help you need. You know, When I think back to that moment, the heaviest thing that ever lifted in my life was my hand for help. You know, and it's like today I've got this really high level of, of empathy can be devastating sometimes because I feel a lot. eh? I feel people's stuff when I'm around like crowds are weird for me because I can pick up that energy. I feel it. Right. But in that moment, um, you know, I I think I I was teachable and I was, yeah, I was willing to try something new. And uh, Bill went in the back room with me and we, you know, we did an asset inventory and my mom was at the top of the list. He said, let's call your mom. I said, I don't want to bug mom. I've been bugging her all my life. And she says, yeah, moms don't give up, though. We rang mom and I begged her for a second chance. She said, OK, I'll give you one more. And she flew out to Vancouver. I was uh, 160 pounds, had drug sores all over my face. I was you know, I was at death. Store. I'll tell you this, if I was using, that was 89, you know, if I was using drugs today, I don't, I don't know what the, the, the toxicity of drugs, I don't, you know, I honestly, I don't, I don't think I'd have made it out of there. I used recklessly. And um, anyways, mom, mom scooped me up, took me home, put me in her basement. And so in a lot of ways, mom provided a housing first strategy for me. But. She couldn't do anything about the mental health. She couldn't do anything about the trauma, you know. And I, I was away from illicit drugs. I was away from pills. I was away from cocaine. I was away from heroin and, you know, these kinds of things. But I still, I drank. I it, it, I just switched. You know, it's like switching, you know, they say switching seats on the Titanic. I just switched and um, just fell into the bottle. And, and one of my patterns is I used to, to drink and become really despondent. And have a lot of dark thoughts, you know. So there I was in my mom's basement. I need to go back a bit because there's part I left out. When I, about three weeks before I left the downtown east side, I met a man who would forever define my belief in sort of human potential, if you will. His name was Gus. And um, he, I remember I sat down beside him because he had a cigarette and I was a mooch. (laughs) There's no real nice way to color that this is kind of who I was I was a, I was a selfish person and I sat down beside him because I thought he was an easy mark and I remember he looked at me his name was I got to know his name his name was Gus and he was about 75 years old he had this shock of white hair and these piercing blue eyes and I remember he looked at me and he said you know Joe he says you're an amazing young man he says if you were able to deal with your you know your homelessness and your you know, your addictions, you you could go out in the world and do something absolutely extraordinary with your life. And uh, he said to me, he says, Joe, there's so much more to you than you can see. And I remember thinking at the time, listen, Bob, you don't know me very well, and there's far less to me than than you can see. Well, What's interesting about what Gus spoke to, and I think this is probably – one the, it's one of the things I, I speak to the most when I'm talking to leaders, when I'm talking to parents, is a belief in possibility. In fact, it's backed by good research. Uh, Dr. Carol Dweck, Stanford researcher, talks about fixed versus growth mindset. When we have stuff happen, we tend to lean towards more of a fixed mindset. I am fill in the blank, right? And so if I am fill in the blank, like for me, I am a loser, why would you bother putting any effort? But if you put effort forward, you could actually change that narrative to I'm not a loser, I'm a winner. I mean, it's a simple, but but, but this, this idea of we are not our circumstances, we're not our past, and we're not even our thoughts. We're so much more than that. And that's what Gus spoke to. And so for the first time in my life, someone other than my mom or my daddy spoke to my possibility. And I never thought anything about that. It wasn't until years later I remembered that conversation right? Sometimes, you know, when I, I'm working with somebody who's, you know, going through so much, that's that's all I'm trying to do is get them encouraged to believe that there is something more than this and to get them to take a tiny little step forward, a tiny step forward, because if they take that tiny step forward, they'll discover their possibility. They'll change their emotional climate and, you know, they'll begin moving towards something, uh, something different. Anyways, back at mom's house, I uh, I continued to struggle. I was, you know, drinking and and falling into depression and suicide ideation. And one night she walked into the room and she, what she saw scared her. And she ran out of the room and she called the Ontario Provincial Police. And um, I was sitting on the edge of the bed and I had a, a handgun. And that just really freaked her out. And I don't know what I said, but it wasn't obviously encouraging and so she freaked out and called the opp and you know as i said earlier i i never had a warm fuzzy relationship with law enforcement and um called to the scene that day was uh, constable scott mcleod and what happened over the next 20 minutes or so changed the trajectory of my life and it wouldn't be the first time this this happened um but I believe in in uh, in so many ways. Scotty was ahead of the mental health bell curve. And you know, it's funny. Years later, he was interviewed. Um, and and I actually understand use of force training today. That that interaction could have ended real quick, and justifiably so. If you know, I that officer feels threatened, use of force is justified. Um, instead, what Scotty did is he diffused using communication skills and empathy. He diffused an incredibly dangerous situation. And instead that ended poorly for me that night, I got a ride to the mental health unit at the local hospital. And over the next several weeks, they you know, helped me get to a place where I was stable enough to make a decision to go into residential treatment program in uh, eastern Ontario. And so. What's what's interesting about that is that you know so often we, you know, we get these horrific examples of what happens when it goes horribly wrong. In fact, you and I were talking about that, about the news and how it's, you know, there's only two things on, you know, t- TV or the internet. It's like things that scare you or things that you know make you angry or outraged. And what happens when a police interaction? where fire interaction goes wrong, it's so it's, there's more money in vilifying, right? Take a look at the news on, uh, you know, fire and getting rid of en- encampments because they're a fire hazard. All of those stories are the same way. It's like the, the bad guys have showed up. It's like, well, no, propane tanks go boom. Like can't have them in tents, but anyways, um, Scotty, you know, diffused this, this really dangerous situation, and, and it's a really great example of what happens when it goes incredibly well. And I think we need to tell more of those stories. You know, one of the things, having worked with so many police and first responders, is that, that people don't get to hear the good stories. I've stood in stadiums with 25,000 people who are in long-term recovery. Some of them with you know what a, a year clean six months, some with thirty five, and all, I could I probably, I probably bet ninety eight percent of them had interaction with fire, with ambulance, with police, but they they're not going back to the police station, knocking on the door, say hey yeah you know, I, I want to thank you for arresting me and you know throwing me in the pokey, and they're not they're not doing that, but they're going on with their lives, you know they you know they they're two three four years sober they got a painting company now their kids are back in their life they you know they made amends with their parents like these stories are as perennial as the grass is green we're just not telling them enough and so it's it's like this this is the kind of call that you know you want to carry unfortunately it's it's all the other calls that we carry that ultimately impact our mental health and anyways uh when i had a year sober i wrote scott a letter and i said hey thanks you know he arrested me, charged me with uh, three charges serious charges and uh I, I went through the process uh, went through the courts, took my licks, um, made amends, went through all everything I needed to do when I had a a year uh, uh, when, when I graduated college I, I wrote him a, another letter and thanked him and, you know when my <laughs> when my daughter was born, I phoned him and thanked him. And when I had 10 years uh, in my recovery community, they gave me a coin and uh, I jumped on an airplane. I was living in Vancouver and I jumped on an airplane, flew all the way across the country, knocked on the Rose Street detachment of the OPP and uh, gave that coin to Scotty. I think that when you look at why you do what you do, somewhere deep down, our core values, a purpose, a passion and a why. But life, life size. And that gets tarnished. Mm -hmm. Various different things. You know, the last couple of years have been so brutal. So much change, so much challenge, so much uncertainty, so much, just so much, so much. Right. And it doesn't seem to end. It's like, just flick on the news today and there's just more of it. And so connecting to why. And I think that, you know, stories like this, I've often thought, wouldn't it be cool if you were able to create a national catalog of good stories? You know and share those good stories, anyways. So I um, after um, I got stabilized, I went to treatment. I had this social worker who tricked me into going to college, he <laughs> flat out lied to me. He did, man. He was he came in, he was one of these guys that had glasses and he looked over top of his glasses, you know, these pretentious smart people, right? He had a clipboard and he's looking over his glasses at me and he says, Hey, Joe, he says, Your housing is running out, you've been here six months, you got to make a move. And uh, he says, if you uh, if you do an application at the local community college, um, I I can get you six more months of housing. Because he knew he was my one on one counselor. He knew where my roadblocks were. He knew about, you know, how I saw my I didn't see myself as smart. I grew up 10 years in the shadow of a guy who told me I was stupid. I bought into that. And so that's how I acted. Right. Anyways, he tricked me into going to college. I, I, I walk on the campus at Loyalist College. I'm 24 years old. I'm feeling intimidated, you know, like I don't belong here. And then I had these really great professors. And something magical happened as I put my head down and did the work. You know, it's amazing how the emotion keeps our feet from moving forward. But when we take those few steps, the emotional climate changes. And all of a sudden, you get a glimpse, opaque as it may be, you can see something. You can see something through there. And then eventually, you know, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. And I started to get A's and B's and I had these great teachers. And, you know, finally, after three years, I walked across the stage at at Loyalist and they said, Joe Roberts, Dean's List. And I graduated with a 3.94 GPA. And I remember I had this group in the audience, bikers and leather jacket wearing recovery you know, they're scaring people and bringing down property values. <laughs> but, but they were hollering they were and hooting because they knew how far I came to walk across that platform. Yeah. And uh, when I look back at my life and sort of what happened after that, it's like I'm here today because of over 10,000 people. I'm not special. I had access to resources. I had access to treatment. I met a guy named Gus. I met a guy named Scott McLeod. You know, and when I was in the downtown east side, I would say no less than a hundred times. First responders and fire brought me back to life. Like countless times, they were dragging me out of an SRO, bringing me over to St. Paul's. You know, funnily, I uh, I actually got to do a ride along this past January or February with uh, Fire Hall Number Two in downtown Vancouver, and I got to share with them because today, nine out of ten of their calls our, our overdose. And again, they don't get to hear the good stories. And so I, you know, I got to, I got to see it from their perspective. And I also got to share, you know, a little bit of my journey. And um, anyways, I graduated with honors. I needed to go out in the business world and get a job. I was sick of living in Ontario. They get harsh winters. So I decided I'm going to give Vancouver another, you know, another, another swing. And I, I had five years sober at this point. So I, I uh, loaded up my '82 Honda Civic on the back of a U-Haul and headed west for fame and fortune again. But this time it turned out well. Um, I got my first job in sales, uh, working in Manol to Canada, and um, absolutely crushed it. And and then I had another friend of mine. After a year of that, I I left. A friend of mine was starting this dot-com technology business, you know, building websites and corporate video and and uh, he explained the tech to me, but I didn't really understand it. But I knew how to sell. I had, I had this really, you know, I had this gift of gab. It's, it's interesting. Almost everything that I have today comes from that negative life experience. You know, when you think about COVID or you think about the, the greatest challenges that we face often can prepare us for work somewhere else the greatest tragedies that people go through, losing a son or a daughter or that first marriage didn't work out. Or yeah, I think that great advocacy, not always, but sometimes can be born out of great pain and suffering and struggle. And I knew how to communicate with people. I had to do it for 10 years of my life. I had to shape behavior using communication to get through a day. Every day I woke up with an unsolvable puzzle. (laughs) <laughs> and so I had that. I had perspective. I know what a bad day looks like. When COVID hit uh, three and a half years ago, I remember going, oh, I've been here before a thousand times. And I had this toolbox. It's like any person, anyone listen to this right now, it's like you will not be able to look through life from this day forward without looking through the lens of COVID. It's baked in. And not always, but a lot of times those negative life experiences give us tools, they to build resilience, they give us perspective. And when somebody says, oh, it's been a bad day, and you reflect on, wait a minute, I've had bad days. This isn't a bad when COVID hits, hit, like this is a bad day. And for me, it's like, it is. But I've seen I've seen some pretty bad days, and I knew how to emotionally cope. Anyways, I I uh um, I joined partnership with this partner and mostly because he believed in me you know and uh we put our heads down and i came up for air about three and a half years later and i looked around and i didn't recognize my own life i was driving this great big ostentatious german sedan i won't tell you the make but the initials were uh bmw (laughs) that's a tricky one (laughs) yeah i know i know bavarian (laughs) mottefax and uh Yeah. The car was important to me. You know, the bling was important to me in the beginning, making money and yada, yada. I drive a Toyota now I got over it, (laughs) but, uh, I'm driving this big expensive car to a company that had like 50 people working for it. And and I'm going down into the downtown East side. And I'm in one of those States where you're not mentally present to where you are, you know, you kind of off in the clouds and I, I stop at the corner and I'm like right in the neighborhood and I look out my tinted window and it was a kid about nineteen with a shopping cart full of cans and bottles. My old vocation, and my old location, and it hit me how far it'd come. When I got to the office that day, sitting on the sitting on my desk was a copy of Canadian Business, and I was on the cover of it. In less than twelve years, I went from a you know a guy struggling with it, addiction, homelessness, suicide ideation to the Canadian version of the American dream, and you know, for years that's where the story ended, and that was kind of a nice little wrapper, isn't that cool? The arc of you know the rags to riches story. Oh, that's fantastic! Wow, you got everything that our Western culture teaches brings happiness, joy, and I wasn't any more fulfilled. I had it all. I got the house, I got the bling, I got, I got some awards, I got some attaboy's. Wasn't anymore. and and what I've learned in the process. i'm 56 years old now i think that we show up best in this world when we're in the service of others and so that's what i try to do now it's like um i i uh, in 2003 i left the business world i had built a company to my level of incompetence you know i grew through the leadership ranks till i found myself sitting in a chair and on Sunday night, I I just dreaded going to work in the morning. And it wasn't that we weren't, I wasn't successful. I was, but I wasn't doing work that was passionate and meaningful anymore. And so I said, I'm out. And my daughter was born in, in 2003. And so I left, I sold my piece of the company and, you know, I went off in my merry little way and uh, I wanted to do advocacy and work with youth, troubled youth in schools and, Group homes. And so I started doing some of that. And I started to speak in high schools. And I started and did a couple hundred of those. And next thing I know, somebody found out the connection between my story and the business world. So I got asked to speak at chambers of commerce and lived experience panels. And anyways, years passed, and I started working with this guy named Dr. Sean Richardson. I wrote a book. And Sean and I were doing consulting management. And we were on an airplane going into Calgary. And I said, Sean, I want to do something to engage the country in a conversation, of what we could do to better protect young people, support those kids that struggle with mental health, to support kids that come from a different background, support kids that come from a different, you know, uh, sexual orientation, support kids that come from uh, First Nations communities, support kids that come from violence or early childhood trauma experience, and give them what they need so they don't end up, you know, pushing a shopping cart like I did. And Sean, he, nah, he's a former Olympic athlete. He's also a uh a high performance uh he's also a, a formal athlete he's also a phd in high performance psychology so he works in professional sport in fact you should have him on the show he's he's brilliant and Sean says to me he says uh, he says well when Canadians want to raise money for things they run across the country you know he says we're inspired by Rick Hansen and of course Terry Fox and uh, he says, why don't you run across Canada Joe and I said, why well, you run across Canada.
0: <laughs> it's your idea. Yeah.
1: yeah. I didn't want to run to the store. I would have run to the corner. I was 45 years old and a, and a self-admitted non-athlete. You know, I'd spent the last 15 years sort of behind a desk and behind a computer and, you know, the pounds catch up with you. And, you know, I maybe I was active when I was 20 or 25, but I certainly wasn't at 45. And so the notion of, you know, trolloping across the 2nd largest country on earth didn't really appeal to me. Uh, but then he said something. He says, you know, Joe, he says, when you share your story with people, I watch. I, I'm I'm usually in the side watching. People, you you emotionally impact people, and they, it changes the way they see the world. And whether it's students, whether it's government officials. Imagine what he said. Imagine what you could do if you walked across the entire country. Maybe you don't run, you walk. And you have that conversation on what we could do to better protect kids. And uh, I said, okay, I put on my business hat. I said, what's the value proposition differential? How is this going to be different? How's this going to be unique? How are we going to make anybody take notice or care? He says, I got it. He says, why don't you push a shopping cart across Canada? It's a symbol of chronic homelessness. It's a thing you're trying to avoid for every kid. And there was something about the push a shopping cart across Canada that made the hair on the back of my neck tingle. It was such an outrageous idea, but there was something about it that just really, really captured my imagination. I thought that that'd be cool. And then he said, "He says you could call it a push for change." And it was kind of like we were sitting in the front of the plane. The plane landed. We went and did our business. I went home, and uh, I, I I started doing these really long walks and posting them on the Facebook i went and did this 30 now you, you're going to remember i'm not an active athlete i post this 30 kilometer walk on my facebook page then the next day a 24 kilometer walk and then the next day a 22 kilometer walk sean phones me now what, what i tell you about sean he did his phd on injury in in elite athletes um and that that's what his phd was on he says what are you doing i said well you remember that conversation on the plane i'm going to do that walk across canada thing he says have you lost your mind I said, you're the psych. You tell me. (laughs) And uh, he says "Then he said something really cool. He says, I want to help you. And we'll do it right. First thing you're going to do is take a couple of days off because you're going to blow your knee or hip flexor. You're doing way too much. And so with Sean's help, you know, he was the first. Yes. And over the next, you know, next couple of months, we built a beta shopping cart and then you know it, it was uh it wasn't a shopping cart we use kids from a local high school and use them as a think tank they said use a baby carriage strip it down and you know make a sh- make a shopping cart because look crossing canada there's no way to do it without going through one canadian winter so it needed to be lightweight winterized you know a real shopping cart i mean i pushed a real shopping cart every time i get one of that you can't, you can't push one of those out, outside a home depot parking lot without Or or worse, you get one of those with the non-compliant rear wheel that, you know. (laughs) So we built a shopping cart. That was the first of 9,999 problems solved. But now we had to do a whole bunch of other things. We had to get me mentally and physically fit. So I did a walk from Calgary to Vancouver in the summer of 2012. That's sort of like the warm-up. And, uh, you know, I walked 1,100 kilometers in two months. And I remember coming into Vancouver and I just had this 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 belief that it was possible, you know, so we stepped back and over the next couple of years with the help and then then we built a bigger group, Marie, uh, my wife, uh, she jumped on board as a campaign director and Sean and, you know, we got some sponsors together. We reached out to first responders. They said, yeah, we'd love to be a part of this fire and police. And we raised a million dollars. It was important. Our charity said uh, we are not going to take a nickel that goes in the bucket to pay for the campaign. So we need a million dollars before we take the first step, which is different. And we weren't corporately sponsored. It wasn't like this was, you know, the ABC push for change. It was it was just us. It was a grassroots campaign. But I didn't want people giving their 20 or 30 dollars and knowing that was going into a gas tank or pay salaries, right? I wanted, I wanted all that money to go and help the kids. So, anyways, three and a half years of living in possibility. We had 27. We counted them one day, 27 show-stopping roadblocks. These were, these were issues that could derail this campaign and stop it in its tracks, 27. And so it was like we had to fly in the fogs because a rational mind would look at that and go, you, can, like, you, you don't have, like, there was, a, there was a moment where we didn't have police support and we're about to push a shopping cart into Northern Ontario in the wintertime. Like, how long is that gonna last? Um, But we had to ignore that and continue to stay in action, building the campaign. And so it it took like uh, two and a half years to build it out. Finally, we had everything in place. We resolved every single one of those those challenges and roadblocks. And I found myself in Cape Spear, Newfoundland, looking at a 9000 kilometer walk across the country. And uh, I was scared to death. You know, I had two fears. One, that my body wasn't going to make it. And two, nobody was going to care. And I was wrong on both of those issues. And over the next seventeen months, we slowly traversed the Atlantic Canada. was was absolutely fabulous, but sparse. So, like Newfoundland was. It's true what they say about Newfoundland. They're the nicest people in the in the world. They they just welcomed us. We, you know, we slowly. I remember. I remember the coolest donation I got in Newfoundland. I'm walking along the side of the highway. I don't know six seven hundred kilometers into the truck. And I looked down and there's there's a bunch of little rocks on top of uh, two $5 bills. Somebody had driven by and, and and put the money in and left. And anyways, we had really great engagement in places like Gander, Newfoundland and, and Port of Bass. And then we made our way through Nova Scotia, uh, up through PEI across the island of Prince Edward Island, through uh, New Brunswick, through Quebec. And then we got to Ontario. Now, I had been walking for almost five months, 2,300 kilometers, and it was relatively quiet. But when we hit Ontario, um, all hell broke loose. We had the support from uh, EMS. We had the support from all kinds of different fire departments, and we we had the community safety partnership with the OPP. And so they welcomed us into the province. And I remember cresting the bridge and looking down at this crowd. And it was the biggest crowd I'd, I'd seen up to this point. It was like maybe a thousand people. They had bus students in from local high schools. And I remember, you know, feeling like, okay, this, this is going to be different in Ontario. And I remember walking to the bottom of the bridge. And then I got, then I got really choked up because waiting for me at the bottom of the bridge was, was somebody I recognized right away. It was the greatest hockey dad in the world. It was Walter Gretzky father Wayne Gretzky. Wow. Who are taking time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm like, I could not believe my eyes, but the OPP had a relationship with Walter and he came out, he actually walked with us through the community that day, like all four kilometers. And he was, he wasn't in his best form, but he, I remember looking at Walter and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, uh, glean some Advice from somebody I admire. I do this with a lot of leaders I meet, mean. and I said, "You know, Walter, what one piece of advice would you give me as I'm about to walk into Northern Ontario?" And he said, uh, "Don't quit." And I remember thinking, "Geez, I was I was kind of hoping for something real. <laughs>
0: So less little generic.
1: Little <laughs> yeah, that's something less bumper stickery. And uh know, yeah, it's a little bit more teeth. But you know, I had a lot of time to think about that message. I mean, don't quit. If it's good enough to create arguably one of the greatest hockey players that have ever lived. Cuz other kids are pretty good too. <laughs> it's it's good, you know, and I I think about that message often if 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 everyone who was struggling simply had one person in their corner to say don't quit. I believe in you, man. You're not having your best day, your best week, your best year, but I believe in you. Don't quit. Don't give it up, man. And and just to cheer folks on, I think we would have more resilient fire halls, we'd have more resilient police stations, we'd have more resilient schools, we'd have more resilient families, we would we'd have more resilient countries. You know, some I think that one of the things that COVID taught me is that we are meant to be in community. You know, I spent so many years on the outside looking in to, to society, and it was it was a self imposed kind of COVID, pushing my shot and card amongst thousands of people that I had no connection to. And uh, you know, Johann Hari, you know, says the, and, and I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but it's the opposite of of uh, addiction isn't recovery; it's it's connectedness, it's community. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what was missing in my life for so long. And, and it's funny too, James, I'm, I'm introverted. I didn't learn that until I was in my early fifties. I get my energy when I'm alone, when I'm walking, when I'm riding my bike, you know, and, and it's weird because I'm in front of thousands of people every week doing what I do, but uh, I need to force that connection to people and to stay plugged into that recovery community and my, my sponsor and my, my people and, and wrap myself out, let, let people know what's going on for me when it's going on. Anyways, we, we made our way um, all the way through Ontario, thousands of, I think the OPP had 150 events. When it was done, the entire country we had over, over uh, 454 events. We raised close to $700,000. Um, but there was some tough days. Northern Ontario in the winter time. you know, walking in like minus forty Celsius, seventy kilometer hour winds coming off Lake Superior. But when it got hard, I connected to why I signed up for it. And I would think about, you know, Sydney and Cameron, two kids that I knew in the streets of Vancouver, from small towns just like me, who ended up, so, sort of moving out to vancouver and getting sort of gobbled up by you know that that street life and that's what kept me going and so you know it's like walter's words and and a deep connection to why slowly saw me you know walk all the way through ontario it took 7 months just to get through ontario and then across manitoba saskatchewan alberta over the rocky mountains and down into vancouver and i remember the last day you know, I was walking along and uh, we had a crowd of about a thousand people. We had um, we had fire. We had police. We had friends from all across the country. We had our sponsors. We had our family. We had school kids. And we were walking down Hastings Street. And I remember when we requested this at Vancouver Police Department, we said, we want to walk down Hastings. So they said, that's ah, kind of an arterial route. Can you take another street? And I was like, no, because Hastings Street is the street Um, for those who know, know that downtown East Hastings is that epicenter that we see on the news when Vancouver's downtown East side is described. And so I said, that's the, that's the neighborhood. And I want to walk through that. And they eventually agreed. And, and I remember the day started off all joy filled and we slowly walked from the outer part of the city in Burnaby down into the downtown East side. And I remember when we got close and we crossed over this threshold, um it's very visceral down there there's tent encampments there's there's people that are really struggling with a, a ton of stuff and there's no escaping it you turn your eyes to the left or right you're going to see an eyeful and i remember how quiet the group got and it was in that moment that i think they understood sort of you know some of the things that we were pushing for and i remember how i passed that park where i sat bootless hopeless where I, on that corner, I, I made that prayer and that promise. And I felt, you know, back in the day, I used to be so ashamed. Hey, I couldn't look people in the eye. I would always look at my feet. I pushed my shopping cart, collect my cans, do my panhandle, whatever it was I was up to. But I didn't like engaging people because I had that deep shame. And, you know, that day, my chin was up and I wasn't ashamed. And I remember walking past that park bench where, where I had that that worst day of my life. And I looked to my left, and and there was Scotty McLeod, OPP Constable, who was there for me. And uh, yeah, it was pretty special. And <laughs> um, we went up to Cambie Street. We turned the corner, and uh, we went up to the. Um, I uh, went up to the library just outside of BC Place uh, Arena, and we had our very last event. And something, something that was, was really interesting, is when I was in uh, Newfoundland, in the middle of nowhere, I found this penny on the, on the road. And I, I knew at the time it was symbolic, but I didn't quite know what it meant. And, and here's the circumstance. I was walking along in a pouring rain in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of nothing in Newfoundland rocks tree there's more moose than there are people on on the island and uh um and i looked down and there was a penny encrusted in the dirt one that kind of looks like the one i've got right here i know people can't see this but you can and it was all it was all dirty and scrunched up and 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 when i picked it up what was amazing is i found this in a place that a penny had no business being. And I remember thinking, and it was the same color as the dirt, yeah, that I found it in. So it was just miraculous that I happened to look down at the same time. And and then it hit me, you know, I found this penny in the street. This penny had traveled up a harder road. This penny had seen and experienced things that other pennies hadn't. This penny had spent a couple of nights out in the weather. What occurred to me as I held that penny in my hand is that even though it's scratched up and beat up and it's had a harder go at life and doesn't look as pretty and shiny as the other pennies or pretty and shiny as it is it was minted by the very nature of what it is it can never ever 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 lose its value and ne- and neither can a human being no matter what and uh I put that penny in my pocket and eight thousand kilometers later I pulled it out And I shared that story with the uh, president and director of the United Association of Canada, and I gave him the penny. And about an hour and a half later, he traded me with a check for $1 million to continue to do the work in supporting youth at risk through our foundation. So, I mean, that's, now there's one last little thing I need to share with you. That's probably, in my opinion, the best part of this whole story. The person who doesn't get credit for that walk across Canada is Marie. I get the awards. You see them on the walls. Yeah, you know, I get this award, that award, honorary doctorate, yada yada yada. Thanks. And and I, look, I'm not ungrateful. I we leverage those to try and speak to more people. So we we leverage that kind of stuff. But Marie was someone who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to put all this campaign together. She fielded tens of thousands of emails. She worked for years to put the campaign directors. To, to, together she was very much the heart behind the cart and she managed the team behind uh the cart and uh yeah and so you know she deserves a, a massive acknowledgement and a shout out because you know if it wasn't for her the push for change wouldn't have happened. and so today um marie and i and our collective values and vision sort of shine the light forward to go out into the world and share this message with as many people as we possibly can whether that's first responders, police, schools, foundations, wherever we find a good fit, where this message can resonate, that's the audience that we're looking to connect with. And so, you know, that's us today. But but here's the other thing that's really cool. And I don't even know if if you know this, but Marie and I don't just share our values and our foundation and our and our work to go out and, and do this speaking stuff. Um, we also share history. <laughs> because Marie's the same girl that I dated in grade ten, and after 28 years, we uh, reconnected, and we two months before the pusher chain shoved off, we made it official and became husband and wife. So, yeah, it's it's the best part. And uh, no, we've been together for uh, that was 12 years ago or 11 years ago. So, um. If I was to sum it all up, it's like, I believe in possibility. And there's there, there is. I don't think there's a person on this earth that could convince me otherwise because of the story I've lived. Now, that's probably the most challenging thing to believe in when we look at the world that we're in today. Or we look at the life that we're in today, our life and our challenges, our health issues, our past, our baggage, our stuff. But despite all of those things, and not to diminish that in any way, shape, or form, I know that um, there is something on the other side of the hurt. There is something on the other side of the pain. And uh and, th- and I just want to use my life to be an encourager and and to say thank you. Because I didn't pull my 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 myself up by my bootstraps. You know, I, I'm here today because, and I said it earlier, I'm here today because people were there for me at those critical moments in my life where I was incredibly vulnerable and they invested in me. And so the next time you see that guy or that gal, you know, one of the things that we can do is be, you don't have to give them a sandwich. Or I get asked, should I give people money? Do, do I buy a sandwich? You can do that. You cannot do that. Eh, that's your choice. I'm not going to direct you either way. What I would suggest, though, is become curiously. Empathic, what happened before that happened? Because we're never going to get to the place in our society where we create any kind of systemic change if we don't understand what happened before that happened. Yeah, anyways, I feel like I owe you money
0: for therapy, man. (laughs) You're not the first person that said that on the podcast.
1: (laughs) No, well,
0: I mean, firstly, thank you. This is the beautiful thing, and I always, you know, I will interject if I feel like it's the the right point, or if someone's come to the the end of their thought process, and other times I just I'm quiet because someone's, you know, mentally in that place in that journey is what you were, and you know, I I feel like I owe you money back because you know, there's so much, so much out of this last you know 60 minutes that we've been talking so far, but I. You underline with your life story so many things that I try and talk about. That, as you said, don't get that narrative—the kindness in the, you know, the first responder community. A question I ask a lot of our warfighters: the kindness and compassion amidst the battle zone. You never hear that, but the, the the amazing good that our men and women in uniform overseas do for each other, for the native people, for the native animals—you never see that in the news. But I want to go all the way back to that eight-year-old boy. You talked about with your dad, You, he was uplifting. You felt safe. And safety in higher, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is the foundation, is the base. I don't think people take the time to take a step back and go, change the, the the question you know what's wrong with you into what happened to you and your timeline you know a lot of times that sadly that trauma started from birth with these families they didn't didn't have a family dynamic change and then it got bad but you did but it illustrates the fact that we're all blank canvases when we were born you look at a you know a preschool there's not the racist toddler you know and the addict toddler and the sex working toddler they're they're children with their whole life ahead of them, and then things happen. None of them are, are with crayons drawing about the bridge they're going to sleep under one day or you know which hypodermic they're going to choose to put their, their heroin in their arm. They're full of hopes and dreams, and then life happens to us. And then the other element that I'm actually writing my second book about is that multi-generational trauma. Now mm-hmm. you take you know your stepfather. As you said, what happened to him? Once upon a time, he was that toddler too. And there's no way in hell he dreamed of dying alone with no one wanting to claim his body. So I want to thank you first for just you know leading us through that because the empathy that you were shown along the way is so heartwarming, and I think mirrors so many of these um, religious philosophies that people really do lean towards. You know that's what these prophets were doing. There was kindness and compassion, but understanding how trauma can affect a person. And refine that compassion and empathy so that when you look at the person who's homeless, the person who's an addict, the person who's a sex worker, the person who's in a gang, you know, the person who's the head of a, a drug corporation that sleeps at night knowing their product's killing tens of thousands of people. We have a mental health crisis. And yet I feel, and we kind of touched on this before, there's very extremist voices that are kind of distracting us from the middle of the road conversation which is we need to refine those inner children and start healing from the ground up
1: yeah you know in some ways james i feel grateful that the symptom of my malady was substance use disorder because there's lots of resources lots and lots there's a community there's a there's lots um you know, I was trolling LinkedIn the other day and I saw this article and I clicked through and read about Second World War. How did Japan overcome being bombed in Nagasaki and Hiroshima? And one of the things that it delved into was societal's, their society's ability to forgive and get to that place where, yeah, I 100% I think that um, there is a there is a language of divisiveness that I try my very best on a day to day basis to not go there. You know, in in walking across Canada for a cause, there are multiple different kinds of voices, there's, you know, really far this way and really far that way. And you've got what I'm trying to find is where's the common ground? Where's the bridge? Where's the thing that we can all meet on? And let's have that conversation. I'm trying to do the dance too. When I do the keynote speaking, I know that I've got both, you know, I've got, you know, most people in the middle, but you've got people on either side and to avoid sort of, you know, setting off a claymore it's like, try to find that common ground and let's work there. You know, who doesn't agree that every, every child should have safety and a roof over their head. Okay, good. Let's start there yeah
0: so tacking on to that um, there was a film made recently. I had um, a couple of the guys the director and then one of the guys featured uh, the film's called Florian Nights, and it was about the the kind of motorcycle club that came out the fire service that really was supposed to be again a kind of mental health positive outlet there was some you know some ways it was perceived and some some negativity towards that particular club but the overall thing was really just kind of revealing and i think it was i think toronto and vancouver if i got that right but it it really kind of showed the homelessness the addiction something that i've talked about a lot on this show and it's interesting because the number of law enforcement officers are actually in agreement is the way that the prohibition on drugs has devolved, has created this empowerment of people that sell drugs, obviously even over the border, but also has driven anyone who's suffering and they happen to lean into illicit drugs as their coping mechanism into the shadows, into the underworld versus, as you said, understanding the vast amount of resources that are available. Through your lens, you know, my, my perspective is is for example, Portugal, Switzerland, some of these that are decriminalized addiction. That doesn't mean you can buy it in the store. It doesn't mean that you can go and sell it on the streets. It doesn't mean you can smuggle it. Those those groups are still being arrested. Um, but the addicts are actually being funneled into well-financed, um, you know, bolstered addiction centers, uh, mental health facilities, job creation programs. So for me, I think it's been an epic failure and we need to really have some humility and look at the way that some of those countries have done it very successfully. But I mean, I don't want to load the question, so I will put a, a, you know, a full stop there. What is your perspective on the prohibition side, the way that we look at addiction at the moment? And if you were king for a day, would you change anything? Yeah. So.
1: (laughs) It's a funny question to answer. Um, because I've got two perspectives. And one is through my own journey of a couple decades in sobriety is a zero abstinence model. So if it was my kid, that's sort of what I would want to try to look at, right? However, I, I think that when you look at Data, like research, that that's what drove the push for change. One of the things I didn't talk about is who we partnered with. We partnered with some really smart people. So yeah, it's inspiring. Okay, guys, pushing shop. What, what do you guys really want? Well, here it is. And it was all sort of really, really great and smart stuff from people who really understand the issue and, and have game plans and solutions. So the problem I see is that the decrim without dissuasion is always going to fail right? It's like you decrim and you make it okay, but you don't shore up. Okay. So let's look at my story. Okay. Great. Okay. You're not a bad person. You're a sick person. Got it. No problem. Uh, But there's access to the soup kitchen guy. There's access to the, the detox center. There was access to the treatment center. There was access to community college. There was employment opportunity and there was ongoing service and support. So let's look at that because that's the part that's been you know, whittled down to almost nothing. And so the problem is, is especially for first responders, fire, ambo, police used to be the call of last resort now are the call of first res- the, the, the call of uh, you know the, they're the first call. And so yeah, I think I think it's 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 really challenging when you can't hold a house up without four solid pillars. if you If you think of a house as a square, right? you need four. You need four solid beams, and then a series of trusses to hold that thing up. If you've only got one, and that—that's the problem—is that I think that the Crim without the dissuasion, and, and what I'm talking about is what experts are talking about. This, is what Dr. Julian Summers is talking about. This is what you know. With, with you know, some of these really smart folks who who research this stuff. Not just I'm careful because I'm just a guy with lived experience. Now, lived experience is great perspective, but. At the end of the day, when I was building the push for change, I really didn't understand the issues until I start, sat down and talked to the researchers. I, I talked talk to the data people. I talked to the doctors. I talked about people who kind of study these problems and say, "Okay, this is what worked over here. This is what worked in Portugal. This is what worked down in in Jamong, uh, uh, Australia. This is what you know." And, and let's take a look at that because we can. If it worked over here, it can probably work over here. What are the nuances and differences? Okay, well, we need to consider northern communities and First Nations. I mean, we need to do this. We need to do this. So, I, I tend to to lean more on what does the data say. And unfortunately, decrim without dissuasion is an unfinished sentence.
0: Yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, as with Portugal, we need to have. I see what I've seen is this, and it's the same as the the Obama care supposedly was supposed to be like with the healthcare that I grew up with in England, which is NHS. And it wasn't, it was a piecemeal attempt at that rather than a complete, you know, rev- rev- what's the right word? Overhaul of an assistant with, you know, because people always point, well, Colorado decriminalized that. No, they chose a couple of substances. They said, man, that's all right. But there wasn't a complete overhaul where if you're an addict and you get stopped with anything, that you are then funneled into this educational journey and there are facilities there funded, built, trained and ready for this large amount of people that we have that are suffering so we can start dealing with that. So this is the thing. I think when I say decriminalize, people think, oh, so I can just go in the store and buy drugs now? This is the problem. No, you haven't done any research whatsoever.
1: The, the thing with decrim, and this is this is, again is a misnomer, for two decades... In high concentrated areas, whether it's the South Bronx, whether it's Mission in in San Francisco or the downtown east side, police have not been enforcing those laws anyways. If they popped you with a paper or two or, a, you know, a gram of crack in your cheek, they crushed it into the ground and go on with your day. So we've been living in decrim in these areas. Now, if you got caught in Idaho with, you know, a paper of maybe you would pick up a charge for that. So it's. It's like we've 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 been there, and and you're absolutely right. Decriminalization is not legalization. And what what some of these other places and other malls have done is that yes, they've decrimmed and, and maybe even worked towards legalization, but they've also then poured hundreds of millions of dollars into treatment, into mental health, into beds, into re- vocational rehabilitation programs, so that they narrowed down dramatically the amount of people who are in need of of uh, uh emergency response to go from 100% down to say 5 or 7 or 15% it, it, it frees up all of those other resources for police fire ambulance healthcare courts right it's the same with it, it's, it's it's the same kind of idea with housing first right housing first model is let's take the most chronic and vulnerable people and house them and if we do that yeah it might cost us 30 40 grand a year to do that but they're costing $150,000 to $200,000 in municipal, provincial, and federal taxes anyway. So it, it's actually a good argument to somebody who's a fiscal conservative because it's pragmatic. It's, it's not Forget about whether you think this is the right thing to do or it's the good thing to do or you want to be compassionate to help Johnny or Jane. It actually makes sense because
0: it's pay me now or pay me later. Well, the irony that parallels... A conversation i have a lot on here about especially the fire department work week so in america i i think it kind of mirrors in in canada but certainly here in the us we project this facade that the firefighters have this amazing schedule they only work a handful of days a month and it's you know the rest of time is is vacation and time with the kids but actually that's a 56 hour work week so they say it's one day on, two days off. Well, it's 24 hours. That's not one day of work for most normal people. That's three crammed together. I mean, outside of obviously extra hours and entrepreneurial shit. But I mean, as far as being in a high stress environment, that's three days crammed together. And then they have one day between, then three days crammed together one day. Um, and so we have cancer and heart disease and suicide and addiction and, you know, testosterone in the toilet and relationship breakdowns. And the answer is to actually bolster... The fire service, the same way as you know, I always say, you know, Wayne Gretzky wasn't not sleeping every third day. He had, even back then, strength and conditioning coaches and nutritionists, and rest and recovery was important. And that's how he was able to be the, the athlete that he was. But the person in Toronto that's going to roll out of a bed at three in the morning after an alarm goes off in the ear and they're going to have to climb 10 flights of stairs with 100 pounds of gear and then go look for someone's child, you know, that's okay to work these work week. And the, the argument is simply, it should be compassion. I care because my first responders are dying. That should be the end of the conversation. I'm an, an altruistic leader and I invest in my people. But more often than not, that's not enough, which I, I fail to understand. But regardless, the other side then is the, the economic side. If you actually analyze the cost for the workman's comp claims, the uh, medical retirements, you know, the the line of duty deaths, the mistakes we make because we're so tired, um, the lawsuits that come from that, you know, the overtime to cover these these spots, you're bleeding money as a city and a county. But it's having that courageous leader that goes, I may not look good in this budget year but my city or my county is going to thank me 10 years from now because we're going to be saving money hand over fist and reopen a lot of these fire stations and put the fourth person back in that fire engine rather than this i just want to look good and to get my christmas bonus mentality that i see in a lot of and i'm using air quotes leadership um that you know is this insanity doing the same thing expecting different results the,
1: the thing that you said is to find that courageous leader and I don't like to be negative, but good luck because they're they're few and far between. And that's because the way the system is, is that we look if Twitter was in charge or maybe not Twitter that sets off a whole bunch of things. But if 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 the corporation was in charge of the return on investment with some of these social problems solved like that, they would be solved in in six months. But we've got we've got a lack of accountability in, in 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 leadership because it it cycles, right? It's like I'm only going to be a chief for this long, or I'm only going to be an, uh, an MLA for this long, or I'm only going to be a mayor for this long, or I'm only going to be a congressman for this long, and so it's these four year, six year cycles, two year cycles, and you can't fix a twenty year problem with one person in a four year cycle, because. They know as soon as they kind of go in that direction, that's it, it's political suicide. They're just gonna get hammered. Um, So I don't know what the solution is, but I I agree with you 100%. It's like, the problem is, and we had this in, in the push for change, where people said, what are you pushing for? And we said, early detection and prevention of youth at risk. Get at them before they cycle out of school, keep them in school, get them the mental health supports that they need, get them housed if that's what they need, get them the counseling, get them the addiction, whatever it is that they need so they don't cycle out of school. Because once a kid bo- pops out of school, now they become difficult to connect in the community. So uh, ultimately our entire message boiled down to prevention. Prevention isn't sexy, right? Homeless shelters are sexy. But that's the problem. And that that what that's the microcosm of healthcare. That's the microcosm of what you're talking about. It's like, Going upstream doesn't seem sellable. It's hard because it's it's abstract. It's like you want to invest in what? And so it, it becomes it becomes difficult and finding those 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 really awesome champions who really get it, who are gonna run it up the hill. Yeah. I've I've been fortunate. I met some I've met a couple of, of really neat uh, fire and police leaders who get it and they're driving. And uh, like the fact that the Ontario provincial police got behind us, a charity that represented youth at risk was absolutely like, if you would have asked me, I would have said, no way that they were, they weren't even on my radar, but they got behind it because it was a, a perfect fit for what they're championing on mental health about their community engagement uh, internally there was, there was a, a lot of really good stuff there and the, the senior leadership of the organization, uh, both then and now understands, um,
0: those pieces really, really well. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to hit one more topic and then we'll go to some closing questions. Cause I know we've got about 25 minutes left. You, you have this amazing growth and, and then you kind of underline what I've heard a lot, you know, I was very successful. After I came the out the other side of, you know, mental crisis X, but only on paper, I felt unfulfilled. And, you know, now you find the service element and now, you know, you're getting this real soul nurturing growth at the same time. In the mental health conversation, I feel like, you know, we, we, we're we kind of there now with opening up, you know, getting rid of the stigma a little bit, having these conversations, but I feel there's still a very negative undertone into what what does that look like what does the other end look like well you know now i deal with my you know my mental health i've got my dog and you know i do my emdr every couple of weeks but i don't hear a lot of conversation about you know processing trauma coming out the other end becomes a superpower there's post-traumatic growth It's, it's an exciting thing and when you have these tools The empathy and the connection that you can start with other people that, you know, you've opened the door for conversations and you've, you know, sadly that me too got a very negative spin, but it is me too. Like, let me tell you about the shit I've been through Mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden other people connect, but let me show you what I've been able to do since. You know, this has become an asset. My scars, like the Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, with the with the gold mm-hmm. glue. Look at my scars. I'm fucking proud of my scars. So, talk to me about that element because it's not a part of the conversation that really gets a lot of airtime.
1: I think that if you look at the the model for moving through trauma or stuff, life happens. There's this big emotional impact. Then we find ourselves sort of in the gutter, and we're struggling. And then we start having conversations and we begin to work through, muddle through and make new meaning. That's the bridge going from, you know, the crap to making new meaning. And I think that that's the conversation that's been had for the last decade and accelerated because of COVID. Right. So let's talk. Let's talk. The The thing is, is that there's another stage and that's let's do. And that's where you sort of embrace possibility. How can I take all of this and turn it into something? My greatest asset is I know what what living behind a dumpster feels like. My greatest asset is being in that. I've I've spoken to over a million kids in various different high schools and capacity in the push for change. And the only thing that causes them to sort of sit still for the first 10 minutes is lived experience. So taking it sort of full circle, it's sort of like an upside down bell curve, right? It's like, okay, moving to making making new meaning, sort of reframing life's greatest challenges. The next question becomes, what can I do with this to maybe help someone else? Or what can I do with this to, to continue to heal myself? What could I do with this that would great, give me great fulfillment and joy? And I think those are some of the things that that can be really, really exciting. Uh, I'm fortunate. I worked alongside a guy who was a performance psychologist. So he walked me through that stuff, right? didn't let me didn't let me sit, right? And by the way, I, I wouldn't judge anybody who simply made it across the the Rubicon and, and they're 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 okay and they're You know, they're not thinking about harming themselves and they're sober today. Good. Awesome. Uh, Massively applaud that. And if that's base camp for you, awesome. But I want to tell you that when you study happiness, you get into stuff like Dr. Martin Seligman's stuff and the research they've done. We know that altruism and helping other people is another layer. I I was in Detroit two weeks ago and I spoke at CTIT, which is crisis. I hope I get it right. Crisis intervention teams and this is these are the mental health teams that work alongside police law enforcement to de-escalate and create positive outcomes so it's kind of the heart of my story what scotty did and I, I spoke to 14 or 1500 people now 15 20 years ago that would have been a really scary thing to do to stand up in front of those people and share the story i just shared with you because you've got to be vulnerable but i'm telling you the currency on the back end of that I'm riding high for days, knowing that you know I had that impact, and I get a chance now with every day that I've got left to go out in the world and make the world a better place. I take the worst part of me and I use it to bring out the best in others. What a joy that is, man! You know, and when 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 I'm when I'm thinking about fire professionals or police or first responders or military. The one common theme I see is a deep connection to core values. This isn't not to beat up on accounting or writing code for computers, but it's a, it's a different kind of job. And it's a different kind of calling. And when you get into asking that question, how can I take this? You know, shit and turn it into diamonds? How can I take this and create possibilities? How can I share this this experience? And the thing I've found, James, is that it's it's accelerated my climb up, um, you know, that pyramid of self-actualization that Maslow talks about. This is the point of self-actualization when you're actually able to take all of that stuff. So to summarize, it's like, yeah, we need to talk. Let's talk, let's talk, and let's de-stigma. But then it's like, let's do what can we what can we do with this, and that's the stuff that I don't know when i'm when I'm trolling social, that's what I like to see you know the Navy SEAL swim in the Hudson River ah, that's awesome, yeah, good do do do, and how rewarding is that for the volunteers, the people that are doing it, and the people that are watching it
0: absolutely well, a few closing questions then before I let you go, the very first one. Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh, gosh. So many.
1: Uh, I mean, I'm looking at a shelf right now full of books. and uh, But I don't want to be trite. I think I would like to reframe the question and say the the book that I've read recently that had the most impact was uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits. And I really like James Clear's Atomic Habits on creating change without all the personal development hubbub. This is a book that teaches you how to actually get your feet moving towards creating sustainable change. It's systematic, it's simple, and it works. Um I like that book a lot and then I don't know what else I mean I have some my business books that I, that I that I cherish I like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by uh, uh um uh Win Friends and Influence People Sorry, Carnegie? Carnegie Dale Carnegie I also like a guy um as a man think it and oh gosh, now I'm going to forget the author's name's James, I think. As a man thinketh, ah, yeah. I tend to I tend to lean towards uh, personal development stuff stuff, and I like to read stuff that's 50 or 100 years old because it's it they're not trying to sell me a weekend seminar, <laughs> and it's usually
0: it's usually bang on. I mean, some things that we've learned a little bit more about, but. Beautiful. Well, what about movies and documentaries? Any of those that you love? I mean, I like... uh,
1: There's a couple inspirational movies that I like watching over and over again. I like October Sky. I like um, Rudy. There's a beautiful story behind Rudy. You know what else I'm a sucker for? And I know some of you might laugh at this one, but Rocky 1. Gosh, I love that movie. And there's a beautiful story inside the story of Rocky one and Sylvester Stallone, this guy who's five, six, who saw himself as an action figure and uh, nobody else saw that. And the, anyways, I won't ruin it. You can Google it and read the story about Sylvester Stallone trying to sell that script with him as the actor. They didn't want him, but, and so it's, it's kind of like the resilient story. Of, and then the him as a screenplay and actor, there's a resilience story i like I like things that activate uh, inspiration, because when I activate inspiration, it gets my feet moving towards something. It helps me have the courage to take that hill or to take that next action. That's what I'm doing as a speaker is is to try and get people inspired. There's no such thing as a motivational speaker. If they are, they would they would be violent in nature, because motivation is to move someone from one space to another against their will. That's, there's no, I don't think there's motivational speakers. It's a misnomer. There's inspirational speakers, the people that elevate your emotional level and get you to say, hey, I could try that or I could do, and then you go out and you do a little thing and you do a little thing and, ooh, I feel good. And then you do another little thing. And then you have momentum because your emotional ch- ch- state has changed and now you you begin moving in the right direction. So, yeah, I like stuff that's, that's, that's kind of emotive. But,
0: it's beautiful yeah the term life coach i struggle with too like we've all just been through one so far so i'm still waiting for the you know the 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 buddhist that's had multiple that can prove it and be like okay i've had 20 lives so let me tell you how not to be a cockroach okay now i'm listening all right um well then the next question is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world two two people
1: yeah uh, Alan Keller is a friend of mine and uh, a mental health advocate out of Saskatchewan. I love him to pieces. He and I have worked together. I've heard his story. He's he's uh, he's really humble. He's been through some 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 stuff, and uh, I just love the work that he's doing. And then Dr. Sean Richardson is a premier sports psychologist. He actually works in the footy. He works in Aussie footy down in uh, – he lives in Brisbane, Brisbane. And uh, he's taught me, I mean, the recovery community gave me a foundation. Sean, Sean showed me how to fly at at 37,000 feet. This is a guy whose ideas and intellectual property drives the best coaches and the best athletes in the world to go out and achieve possibility. So a lot of what I share is is sort of a, my my version of living it, but it's Sean's IP. Beautiful. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And he's the one who's taught me, you know, that whole upside down bell curve and yeah.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'd love yeah. to get both of them on if you're able to help. That'd be amazing. Yeah, done. Easy. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and the Skid Row CEO platform what do you do to decompress when you're not pushing a shopping trolley 9,000 kilometers?
1: <laughs> ice baths,
0: ice baths.
1: Um, actually, I, I, I'm joking about ice baths, but actually I do use ice baths. Ice, ice baths actually trigger a varga nerve. They help deal with depression and anxiety. I do a lot of exercise. For me, exercise is, is a component, but also diet and sleep. So both Marie and I went plant-based. She, six years ago, I went through three and a half years ago, not for, for reasons that some might think I did it really because I was doing Ironman, uh, competition stuff. I was doing like really, really heavy endurance. Uh, and I found that eating green helped me recover a lot quicker. So to decompress, I meditate. I listen to high vibration music. I try to limit social media and news especially i'll check in with myself emotionally and mentally and go how am i doing right now i'm not good okay though maybe you want to stay away from indulging in the in the in the news of the of the day stay away from that until maybe you go out and you do your run so it's a combination of things and i also recognize that some days it's going to be easy i'm going to get up i'm going to sail through that day and other days I'm going to have to use five tools in the toolbox. I'm going to need to write. I'm going to need to go to a meeting and wrap myself out. Talk to people and say "Ah, I'm not feeling good. Um, You know, listen to the listen to Marconi Union, which is a song uh, that was designed to calm your your waves. I try to 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 meditate and breathe. Um, So there's there's a whole pile of things. I think that it's not one thing. You want to have a really robust toolbox. You've got multiple
0: things to use,
1: and it also depends on where am I? Am I stage one or am I a stage, you know, I need somebody standing beside me right now?
0: Have you ever heard of a technology called Newcom? NuCalm, N-U-C-A-L-M?
1: No, I'm not familiar with that.
0: So I'm going to send you an interview I did. I mean, just from a an intellectual business, all those areas, I think you'd find it interesting. But you talked about the frequency. Um This is a technology, and it's the only one that has the patent and everything in the entire world, but it was used by NASA and Navy SEALs and all these things, but they've just now, with the smartphone technology, been able to turn it into an app, so us normal people can use it too. But you're listening to music, but underneath they've actually got the frequency, and the doctor behind this, who supposedly is one of the most intelligent men that's ever graced the earth as, as far as we're aware of, initially identified the frequency that you'd be in flow, in theta or delta you know sleep Mm. i mean all these different things but then he figured out a way to manipulate that and so you put on in the down regulation ones you put on an eye mask and um a uh yeah a set of headphones noise cancelling headphones and you just lie there and it's passive which is awesome if if people anyone that's tried meditation and struggled a little bit but then they also have up regulation ones for focus for you know runs that kind of thing but i am not someone that shouts on rooftops about very much. They have to be phenomenal for me. And like the, the shirt I'm wearing now, Foundation Training for Back Health and is uh, incredible. I've shout all day long for years and years. But New Calm is my new thing. So I'll send you that stuff. I think you'd be fascinating because it sounds like you're almost there with what you're doing anyway.
1: Yeah, I found a bunch of stuff that one of the things is I got mild ADHD and I got mild dyslexia, which means I have the attention span of a gnat <laughs> and uh, I, no, it's like I can get so distracted. So when I'm in airports and I often am going from conference to conference to conference and whatever uh, I need to put on something to tune out, but it can't be words because then I'm listening and then I'm not, able, so my, my brain gets all scrambled. But if it's just tone, if it's just music, and I found that some of these, like I can listen to them and I can be in these really intense chaotic environments and they don't uh it, it, i'm just able to kind of yeah Slide. I, I'm. like i'm i'd be really keen to to have a, have a look at that for sure
0: brilliant yeah i'll send that to you after we're done with this so for people listening as you mentioned you do speak all over the all over the world i think You know, if anyone's not moved by the last two hours, then don't even look at the website because you're not going to be moved by anything. But for everyone else that, you know, is is really moved by your story and can see schools, police departments, fire departments and other organizations that that would definitely value from their people listening. Where are the best places to find you online?
1: Yeah, I've got a website, skidrowceo.com. And if um, anyone's listening and wants to find me online, uh, social, I'm on LinkedIn at the Skid Row CEO, Joe Roberts. So we're not we're not that difficult to find. And, yeah, I do all kinds of different stuff. I do a lot of associations. I work directly with police departments, fire departments, first responders. I also do a lot of corporate stuff too, healthcare. care. And um, I found that one of my greatest leverages is to share the story in the right environment with the right people is how I can create sort of long-term change. I've looked at a whole bunch of things, like I can do anything that I want, but I I get the greatest joy out of doing that kind of work. And I always get one or two people that come up to me afterwards, often more than one or two, and they'll say, you know, like I needed to be here today. I I had this, you know, copper come up to me and he says, I've been, you know, 29 years and you forever changed the way I see this. You know, to me that that's a home run. It's like if I can get people to, you know, see things differently, feel feel a little differently and and honor people for what they do and you know, get an opportunity to go somewhere and and, and meet those folks. That that to me is bliss. Yeah. I love it. Beautiful.
0: Well, Joe, I wanna say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Um, you know, as I always say, every time someone revisits some of their more traumatic areas, whether it's losing your father at eight or, you know, what you endured for years after and all of the things that happened since, you know, you are kind of pulling the the scab off the wound a little bit. But I know the thousands of people that are going to listen to this, it's going to resonate so deeply. So I want to thank you so much for your courageous vulnerability and for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, James. I mean, I, I appreciate access. You know, I remember somebody asked me, you know, what's the one thing that, that you want to pass on? And it's, it's that simple idea that, that Gus gave me on a park bench. Wherever you are right now, no matter what, there's more in you than, than you can see right now. And if you have the courage to get up off that bench and take a couple steps forward, you'll see. You'll see what Gus is talking about. You know, to see it, you'll feel it. And uh, I guess, you know, that's, that's hope. And uh, I'm happy, I'm happy with that, yeah.